And uh, by the grace of God, I hope my voice will hold out. I didn't know Jamel was going to be picking some of my favorite songs. And uh, coming off of uh, my cold, the last part of my cold that hangs on is that little uh, deep voice in the back, right? And so I was able to sing bass with Brother Tim. And uh, I can't always do that. But uh, it might have not been the smartest thing for my voice. But we look to the Lord. He said, make a joyful noise. <laughs> and uh, we really had a great opportunity to do that this evening. Well, Father, as we once again come into your presence, we want to say thank you. Thank you for this great privilege. We look back, Lord. at all the annals of time and consider how man after man after man down to ourselves was in rebellion against you and yet being the author of our salvation the God your word says God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and oh Lord there's so much controversy over spiritual things and anything biblical today but we thank you that we can just rest securely on your word Lord as we look at the life of these men like Stephen like the hymn writer who said when peace like a river attends my way or when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever our lot Lord we would just ask that you would give us the grace to say it is well with my soul knowing that our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to Jesus' cross. And we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. May it truly be well with our souls today, separate from our circumstances, because our ultimate circumstance is that we've been, through faith in Jesus Christ, united with Him, and seated with Him in the heavenlies. And we look forward to the day we can see Him face to face. Until then, Father, we would just pray that You would teach us, teach us to walk closer to Him to become more like Him, that we might one day hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, this morning we looked at Acts chapter 6. Our portion for today was to cover 6 and 7. We didn't make it really into chapter 7. Um, but what we see is uh, that there are two groups of people. And in chapter 6, we see the sons of God, the apostles, the early disciples, as they, through faith in Jesus Christ, were acting like their heavenly father. We see Stephen standing out, such stark contrast to these Jews who were attacking him. And the grace of the Lord was with him and with the Lord's people that was upon them all. And uh, what an incredible testimony it was. And so we saw the commendation upon their lives from the Lord as His blessing was poured out on them, as they had this profound impact, as the church grew, and as their influence in this world grew. Ultimately, it would be said, these men who turned the world upside down have come to us. And really, it should have been turning this world right side up. But anyways, it was the working of the Lord in their lives that was doing it. And these were good examples for us to follow. May God give us the grace to do so. But then moving into chapter 7... <clears throat> We saw that the sons of disobedience, spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2, those who are still under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, that dragon of old, Satan, uh, uh, has them under his sway. 
And they're not sons of God. They're still under the wrath of God. Children of wrath, the Bible would say. And as they responded to the word of God, it was, as Brother uh, Mike was just saying, condemnation to them. And the gospel holds both uh, uh, um, end results for all. And <clears throat> this is something that was was on my heart recently you know we we often encourage ourselves with this passage in Isaiah 55 where we read for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth and it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And you know, we have to wonder when we share the gospel what the response will be. This morning we saw that there were two times mentioned in, the, in these opening chapters of Acts. Actually, I believe the same word was used in chapter 5, but is worded differently in the New King James. But it says that they were cut to the heart. The word of God had pierced their heart. And, and it... It's amazing the, the, the consistency of the terminology, right? In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that the word of God is like a two-edged sword, sharper than any two-edged sword, and is able to divide, divide between soul and spirit and discern between the thoughts and intents of our heart. And that's its goal. Not just to be able to, to conform the outward conduct of our lives to some uh, 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 list of decrees, but rather, as the New Covenant would say, to be able to write God's law on our hearts, that we would have a heart connection to the Lord, and that His work in our hearts would conform our actions to follow into obedience to Christ. And um, we do not see that response here in our chapter, chapter 7 this evening. Chapter 2, glorious, 3,000 souls added to the, to the church as they said, What, brethren, what must we do? to be saved um, and they heard the answer they believed they were added to the church but now <clears throat> these men they have now they could not resist we saw this morning the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke and so they drummed up these false charges against him and so he stood before the high priest as they accused him and even in spite of that it says his face was as the face of an angel but in chapter 7 it reads, And the high, the high priest said, Are these things so? And he goes into this incredible, it's long, but it recounts the history of the people of Israel, or at least portions of it, right? It spans the whole, the whole time from Abraham to Christ. But it's very selective. So I had to ask myself, why did he go? to these particular portions of the history of the nation of Israel when speaking to these men on this occasion. I mean, many of the Psalms recount similar histories. The sermons, like back in chapter 2 and chapter 4, some of them touch on similar things. But why did he go here? He goes right back to the calling of Abraham. And he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham all the way back when he was in Mesopotamia. And he called him to come out of this country... And at that time, we, we, we understand that, that Abram himself was an idol worshiper, but God called him out of that to himself 
And he said, get out of your country and from your relatives. Come to a land that I will show you. And he came out. And then he went to Haran. Finally, he went to the land of Canaan. And God promised him. When he, when he says he believed God and God counted to him for righteousness, God made some promises to Abraham. And one of them was, is that his descendants would possess that land. Now, Abraham didn't possess anything in that land except for the burial place for his wife. So he didn't see the fulfillment of that promise. But God is faithful. That's the point of what he begins to bring out here is that God is faithful. Can I just show you one of the Psalms that I was reading this morning? We didn't get a chance to, I guess like Jamel said, if you're the song leader, you have the privilege of bringing out whatever song you want to bring, right? Well, as I was reading the Psalms, Psalm 93 was our reading this morning and last night. And I I had to wrestle with this last verse because I said to myself, how does this tie in? It's a short Psalm. So I'll just read it for you, with you if, if you'll join me, you can. Psalm 93, it says, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lifted up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. And I said to myself, okay, this is an encouraging psalm. No matter what I'm going through, the Lord reigns. He has clothed himself with majesty and he's girded himself with strength. You look at the world and it is established so that it cannot be moved. I thought, well, there was one time when this world was upset and it was by floods, right? He says, well, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. They've lifted up their voice, their waves. And as loud as the floods were, as high as they lifted up, it says the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of those waters and mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord reigns. That that just kind of gets you riled up, right? It's like a halftime pep talk at the the ball game, right? But in in the spiritual ball game. Spiritual ball game. But then verse 5. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. I was like, um, why did he put that verse there? And what's it got to do with the rest? Now, I haven't studied out the theologians and what people may have written on it. But here's what I felt like the Lord was telling me. And if you have a better thought, please let me know. <clears throat> but you know, there are many times when I feel like the waters are rising. And I wonder how deep they're going to get. But the testimonies of the Lord are very sure. Can we count on the testimonies of God? Can we count on His promises even when the waters are rising? Holiness adorns God's house. God's holiness primarily means, to me it means perfect and pure when I think of it most often. But the reality, is my understanding, is that he's totally separate from everyone else. And so, of course, purity fits right in with that. Because we are not. And compared to him, he is totally separate, right? But he's totally separate in everything else. And because he is, nothing affects him to cause him to change. His testimonies are very sure. 
And so holiness adorns his house forever. And we can count on it. Could Abraham count on his God's promises? Yes. He didn't have to see the end of them. He believed God because God had proven himself to be faithful already. And now, as he says, okay, you're not going to see the end of this inheritance come to you, but your descendants will. But he says, in the meat, first of all, I got to tell you, your descendants are going to go to another land and be bound there for 400 years. But I'm not going to forget about them there. I will bring out, they, I will bring them out from that land and judge that nation. And they will come out back to this place to worship me here. And the Lord fulfilled that, didn't he? His testimonies were sure. And so, in, the, in spite of the faithlessness that we will see of the Israelites, God remained faithful. That's been such an encouragement to me, that verse in 1 Timothy that says, even when we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And there are times where I just get so frustrated with myself because I feel like I just continue to flounder, but yet He remains faithful. And here we see they were there well, how did they get to Egypt, right? He says, the patriarchs uh, 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 became envious of Joseph. And so they sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. And God delivered him out of all of his troubles. This is verse 10 of Acts chapter 7. He gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh. God exalted him. Even though he had been rejected by his brethren, God was with him, exalted him, and he became the very deliverer of his brethren. When the famine came and they had to come to him, they didn't recognize who he was, but he was there, he was faithful, and he was gracious, and he provided for them, and he saved his family. That was the working of God. Yes, his brethren sold him out of their envy, out of their jealousy, but... Joseph himself said, God sent me ahead of you to provide a salvation for you. He could see it. But then their history goes on. They're there. And a king arose who did not know Joseph. And this man, verse 19, dealt treacherously with our people. He oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies. And at this time, Moses was born. And Moses, after this whole story of him being uh, brought up in Pharaoh's house, when he was 40, it, it came into his heart. Well, where did that come from? Well, the Lord put it into his heart to visit his people. And he goes and he, he beholds the oppression. And he was offended at the way his brethren were being treated. And he struck down the Egyptians, supposing, verse 25, that they would understand that God was going to deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day, when he appeared to his two brethren fighting, and they said, who are you? Who made you ruler and judge over us? They didn't understand. And yet, he was the one God chose. He had to go for 40 years into the wilderness, but when God revealed himself to him at that burning bush and sent him back, he went back. And I want to talk for just a moment about this. This is a, a, a little bit of an aside from the, the, the point of the overall passage, but I'll say this. It came time for God to reveal himself to Moses to send him back. He could have done it any way he chose. Why did he do it like this? Moses is carrying on his normal everyday life. He's out there with the sheep in the wilderness. And it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, Moses, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And the story goes on. But let me just stop for a moment. God takes the time to point this out, both in Exodus chapter 3 and here, is that God was there in the burning bush the whole time. 
That's why the bush was aflame. The presence of the Lord was there, and it created this sight. And so Moses looks up and he sees this burning bush, which in the wilderness anyone should be taking note of. But he noticed something different about this bush. It was not being consumed. And so he said, hmm, I need to turn aside and, see, and check this out. And it specifically says that when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, then the Lord spoke to him. He didn't just call out to him. He waited until Moses turned aside to look. And he revealed himself to Moses. Brothers and sisters, we have a phenomenon much greater than a bush that doesn't burn up. This book, written through the hands of 40 different men, spread out over almost 2,000 years, with absolute consistency and accuracy at predicting future events, at revealing the person of God, at exposing our hearts, at leading us to our Heavenly Father. But it doesn't do any good sitting on our shelves. God waits until we turn aside to look. And then He reveals Himself to us. And I bar you know, would I have walked by that bush and not checked it out? Why do I walk by my Bible and not open it more often? When I do, when we come together, how many times midweek meeting, you, you, you're, at the, you're exhausted after a hard day's work and it's, 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 it's a busy whirlwind to get everything done, to be able to get through dinner and get loaded up and to come to the meeting. Of course, it may be a little bit more difficult for my family than yours. I don't know. But how many times has it crossed our minds, well, do I really need to go? Should we? Maybe, maybe we're, you know, the excuses come running through. And, and, but after you've come, you walk away saying, I'm glad we came. The Lord ministered to me. What we talked about tonight was really important. When so-and-so spoke to me afterwards, I was able to be an encouragement to them, whatever it might have been. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. To be amongst His people. To worship the Lord. To, to learn from Him. But the same is true when we actually take out our, our Bibles to read, when we turn aside to look. But don't expect that there won't be obstacles. Okay, that was a double negative. Expect obstacles. I remember, you now see, I didn't read my Bible very consistently as a, as a teenager. All right, We were here every time the doors were open. I figured I, I understood what God was asking of me. We hear this is right, this is wrong. My parents were pretty consistent at trying to drill that into us. And, uh, and so I just kept trying harder to do what I knew I should be doing. But there was a time when I thought, you know, I, I need to be reading. And don't you know, like I began to notice something very consistent. Whenever I opened my Bible, that cat that never gave me the time of day would jump up on my desk and actually sit on my Bible. What? Purring away. Now, I'm not saying cats are evil. <clears throat> okay. There may be some cat and dog wars here. I don't know. But, um, <clears throat> but I was like, wait a minute. He never come. Get out of here, right? My friends would call. People I never talked to on the phone. But they'd call then. You know, it's amazing. Now, again, 
how does this happen? I don't know. But how is it that the loud muff, mufflerless cars come by right when there's an, a gospel appeal while we're here at the meeting? How is it that when we're out in the open air, the noisiest jet ever to take off from Fort Lauderdale Airport happens to be going overhead right when you're getting to the most important part of the gospel? Right? I don't know how these things happen, but I, can, I know why they happen. There's a spiritual battle going on. But when we turn aside to look, the Lord will meet us there, just like He met Moses. And He called out to Moses, and He was telling Moses, I love these words, verse 34, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. <laughs> I'm going to come save them, so I'm sending you. Now, what impresses me about this, if you look at the description of Moses in this chapter, it says he was mighty in words and deeds. Moses had little confidence in his ability to speak. Perhaps he lost confidence in himself after that incident with the Egyptian when he had to leave Egypt. I don't know how to psychologically understand all that, but I'll tell you this. Whereas he thought he was the man... And he was going to do it in his own way. God had brought him to a place of emptiness and complete dependence upon God. And even though he might not have seen himself as much, God used him mightily. He was mighty in words and deeds when he was in the hands of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. This man, Moses, verse 35, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so... The people rejected him, just like Joseph was rejected by his brethren, but God was faithful. God was calling a deliverer, a savior, a ruler, and a judge, and he sent him in his faithfulness. And Joseph was ultimately successful. Moses, we could say, was successful. He did lead the people out by the hand of the Lord, but the people didn't really take him in. You see what it says here in verse 38? This is he, speaking of Moses, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to, uh, to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They rejected the Lord's chosen one, and in their hearts, they turned away. This is the consistent testimony of the nation, but it's a picture to us of the sons of disobedience in general. The, the, the message of God's chosen Savior came to them. This is what he, Stephen is still leading up to. <clears throat> Moses told them, sorry, I skipped the verse, verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, and him you shall hear. That was Jesus. And he did ultimately come, but they rejected him too. So that's why he says this finale in verse 51, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And it doesn't appear to me that they responded to him because he got rough with them at this part of his message. Their hearts were already hard. And we can see that very, all the way back in chapter 6, they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. But rather than submitting to it, they turned to their own way. 
And so the same thing that was said of those people in the wilderness, verse 42 of chapter 7, then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it was written in the book of the prophets. He gave them up to the way that they insisted on going. They were stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and in their ears. So as they were cut to the heart, they gnashed their teeth, they cried out. It should be... I want to make sure we, we, we fully take this in. Being full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Interesting, the God of glory appeared to Abraham, and here Stephen beheld the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at Him with one accord. Now you know, this, this is an interesting statement about Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I think there's another one, but the main... Uh, a passage that comes to my mind about the Lord standing. You know, normally we see Him high and lifted up, but seated on His throne. But in the, the prophet Amos, there are five visions, three sermons and five visions that Amos gave. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Okay. And in chapter 9 of Amos... It says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And he said, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to the heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. It goes on. And I think to myself, you know what? It's good for these men. What we read next when Stephen prayed. He saw the Lord standing next to the right hand of God. And when they rushed at him and they stoned him, it says that he called out to God in verse 59 saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He was inter interceding for them, even in his death. To stay the hand of the Lord, perhaps. doesn't necessarily say that. It could just as likely be that the Lord was standing to receive Stephen into heaven. To say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He who had committed to His servants the ministry of reconciliation. Because although God is not here, present in physical form anymore, it says He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. And Stephen was fulfilling that ministry as he stood there that day, proclaiming to these men who were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Truly, the passage in Proverbs 29 could be true of them. They said... Uh, 
He who is often rebuked and hardened his, his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The stiff-necked person constantly hardening his neck, bucking against the Holy Spirit trying to humble, to bring that person to humble themselves, to take Christ's yoke upon them, will suddenly be broken and that without remedy. And they were without remedy that day. As they took their coats and threw them at the feet of a young man named Saul and stoned Stephen and after crying out with a loud voice, asking the Lord not to charge him with this sin, it says, he fell asleep. And I wonder, what effect did this event have on Saul? We read about how the Lord met Saul on the way to Damascus. Not exactly sure how long of a time it was from this event to that one. But it was obviously very memorable to him. And you know, as you and I are witnesses for Christ in our life today, it doesn't say that Stephen had a conversation with Saul. He heard Stephen's words, he watched his life, and an impression was made for Jesus Christ. And you know, there are people who've had influence in my life, and I've never told them, but their impact and their influence goes on. Someday I hope to see them in glory again and tell them. But you know, there's going to be a lot of people who may do that to you. If we're living as a witness the way the Lord wants us to be. It's both words and actions, right? It says that these are the accounts of what they began to do and to teach. The way they live their lives and what they said. They have to go together. If it's just the way we live, without the words, they're just going to try harder in their own religious efforts. That's what these people did. It says, they made a calf, verse 41, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. They totally missed the point. They were happy about the tabernacle. They were happy about the, 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 this ability to, to, to do this religious thing, but their hearts were turned away from the Lord. And when I look back at my life, that is my greatest regret is is that my words did not accompany my works. That I might make someone more religious, but just as bound for a Christless eternity. But the same is true if we spew a lot of words, but our lives deny the reality of the Scriptures. We discredit the Scriptures we try to quote. It takes a faithful witness of our words and our works to accomplish that which the Lord would have to, to happen with this gospel, this ministry of reconciliation that we've been committed to. Well, these men, they will see condemnation. I see my time has gone. I forgot what I wanted to... Ah, well, we'll have to come back and visit some of these things another day. May the Lord help us to live lives that truly can, can be commended by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and will bring those who are currently bound for condemnation to turn to the Lord and receive His grace. Our Heavenly Father, we again would appeal to You. Paul would ask 
as he wrote the second epistle to the Corinthians, who is adequate or who is sufficient for these things? And he would say, I'm not. But Christ has made us sufficient for all these things. It is only through His sufficiency that has been passed on to us that we can come before you this evening, that we can stand before you ever and spend forever with you in, in the glories of heaven. But Father, until then, until then we press on. The waves seem to be getting deeper and more tumultuous. But help us, as your word says, to be still and know that I am God. Your testimonies are very sure. And holiness dwells in your house forever, O Lord. There's none like you. Help us, Lord, as we have received the Savior that you have given, who was rejected by the people of his day and is still yet rejected in this world. Help us to be a living Savior, an aroma of, of his greatness, both in your, before you, Lord, as well as before this world. We just commit ourselves into your care as we leave tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen.